Today's reading is John chapter 20, 1 through 10, and 19 through 22. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down, took a look, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other's clothes, but it was folded in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who had arrived first at the tomb, went inside. He saw, and he believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus was, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. It was still the first day of the week. That evening while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came among them and he said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I was walking across a crowded street with my wife when the man holding the sign that said something like, Jesus is coming back, turn or burn, held up his megaphone and and blared something at us. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, You, young man and young woman, turn away from your sinful lifestyle. (laughs) And it was was utterly bizarre because he knew nothing about us, and and we were Christians at the time, so it's like, what do you want, you know? Uh, My my wife, (laughs) we're walking by him, and she laughed out loud, and We passed him, and I I couldn't help but look back at the man, and he was sort of shaking his head at us as if he was thinking, what poor lost souls. I suspect that for some of you, the word evangelism conjures up images of street preachers like this. It's the sign with the words of condemnation. It's the megaphone that basically says, I'm not looking for conversation or questions. I really know you really don't. This kind of evangelism, which 
in our minds almost stands for all evangelism is is really infuriating because it's so impersonal, condescending, damaging, and alienating. It's also embarrassing because, if you're honest, you don't want to be associated with those kinds of Christians. And it's bewildering because you really do want people you care about to find love, salvation, joy, and faith with the Lord Jesus, but you think to yourself, if that's what evangelism looks like, then it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, if I evangelize like that, I might just lose my soul, but if I don't, my friend might lose theirs. The bewilderment is that it seems every strategy, method, and technique for evangelism is at best inauthentic, empty, hollow, and at worst manipulative and damaging and alienating. So what do you do? I wonder if you find yourself conflicted about this whole issue of evangelism. I wonder if you're so conflicted about evangelism that you actually find yourself hiding who you really are and what matters most to you from your friends and your neighbors. This morning, I want to explore with you how we might find new joy in participating in witness and mission, both as individuals and also as a whole church. I mean, participation with God and with each other in mission and witness could be one of the most joyful, freeing, and meaningful parts of our lives together. We will be looking at the Gospel of John. John doesn't use the word evangelism. The word the Gospel of John uses for evangelism is witness, and witness is part of something bigger called mission, and we'll get to that later. Witness is not a strategy or a method for persuading people to become Christians. Uh, for John, it's sort of like if the whole world was a courtroom, Christians would not be the lawyers who make persuasive arguments meant to change people's minds. Uh, but that's typically how we think about evangelism, isn't it? It's, it's as if it's all about persuasion, and uh, if evangelism is about persuasion, then you feel inadequate because you maybe don't know how to articulate the gospel to somebody who doesn't already believe it, or you don't know how to answer whatever objections might be posed to you. And even if you did know all of that, you think, well, how would I have that kind of conversation with my dear friend who's not a believer who I've known for 10 years? But John would say, no, 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 Christians are not the lawyers who make persuasive arguments. He says, Christians are witnesses. Christians are witnesses to what we have seen and what we have heard about Jesus. The problem, of course, is that we have not seen Jesus with our eyes because uh, Jesus has ascended to the Father. He's not with us now in the way that he was with the disciples then. Uh, one way to put it is that Jesus is absent. He's not around. But the way that I think the Gospel of John would put it is his, he is present, but his presence is different now. And part of the problem of Jesus' absence or new mode of presence for the Gospel of John is how does faith in Jesus come about in people at, at all? I mean, how do, you, how do you see and believe in Jesus? What is witness and mission really about? 
these are the questions that the story of Jesus' resurrection and the Gospel of John addresses. Um, if, uh, well, please, please open your Bibles or your Bible apps to John 20. John doesn't narrate the resurrection itself, only its aftermath. It's like a crater has, uh, an asteroid has struck the earth and there's this huge crater and you come and you, you see it and you think something earth shattering has happened, but then you need to make sense of exactly what that was. Um, and so that's what the resurrection is like. Uh, the tomb that Jesus' body was laid in is discovered empty by Mary, Peter, and the disciple Jesus loved. So how did they make sense of the empty tomb? Look at verse 2. Mary thinks someone has come and taken away the body of Jesus, and she tells Peter and this other disciple. At this point, there is no doubt that Jesus is dead. His body is talked about as something that can be picked up and carried away. It's a corpse. It's not a living body. It's an it and not a he. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, they heard him and they thought, it really is finished. Jesus is dead. The best we can do is provide Jesus with a burial to honor him. And now it seems even that is taken away because his body has been taken away from the tomb. And they, the disciples don't understand what has happened. They don't understand why the tomb is empty. So if you look at verse 8, when the d beloved disciple enters the tomb, we're told that he believed. But then the question is, what did he believe? It, it could be that he believed God raised Jesus from the dead. And that wouldn't be a bad reading. I mean, if anybody in the Gospel of John would believe that, it's a beloved disciple. But then again, he leaves Mary weeping at the tomb. So it might simply be that he believed what Mary said. The tomb is empty. The corpse of Jesus has been carried away. In verse 9, the narrator tells us they didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus was to rise from the dead. And so Peter and the beloved disciple go back home. In what follows in John 20, we make two discoveries. Two discoveries about witness and mission, which are also discoveries about who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. The first discovery we make is that Jesus is alive and that Jesus makes himself known. We first discover that Jesus is alive when he appears to Mary. Look at verse 11. Peter and the other disciple have gone home, and Mary stands by the tomb alone, weeping. And as she is weeping, she stoops down, and she looks into this tomb carved out of solid rock. She sees two angels sitting in the tomb where the body of Jesus had been. They say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And the question is sort of ironic because the angels know something Mary doesn't. I mean, as far as Mary knows, Jesus is dead. She tells them what she told the disciples. They took my Lord. I, I don't know where they put him. 
The next scene is utterly beautiful. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. It's at the very moment that Mary is talking about Jesus as though he's dead, she turns around and she sees Jesus. He's not lying cold and still. He's standing and breathing and speaking. Verse 15, it's, <laughs> but Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't know it's him. I mean, perhaps it was the tears blurring her vision. Perhaps it was the inconceivable nature of resurrection. That just does not happen. Perhaps Jesus looked different. We, we really aren't told why Mary couldn't recognize Jesus. We don't know. I mean, she thinks he's the gardener, which may have been a mistake, but... Uh, here you have man and woman in a garden after the resurrection. It's like a new humanity, a new Genesis story. Um, anyways, so Jesus addresses her, and, and he asks her the same question that the angels asked her. And again, it has that irony. He says, woman, why are you weeping? And he adds a question that he asked the disciples at the very beginning of the gospel. What do you seek? Mary answers Jesus, not knowing it's him, and, and she tells him a variation of what she first told the disciples and then the angels. Sir, if, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you put him. Uh, what a moment. What Mary wants most is not a thing, it's a person. And although she's speaking to him, uh, speaking to Jesus, she thinks she will never see him or hear from him again. But with a single word, Jesus will change Mary's entire world, will change her weeping into laughing and um, her unknowing into joy and will change the empty tomb from a site of unmitigated disaster into a site of glory. And that one word that Jesus speaks is Mary. Jesus calls her by her name. Mary hears Jesus call her name and immediately she, she recognizes him. She, she recognizes that it's Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. He calls his sheep by name. They know his voice and they follow him. So Jesus then tells her to go back to the disciples, this time with very different news about the empty tomb. She tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And this is our first discovery about witness and mission. It's that Jesus is alive and that Jesus makes himself known. I mean, how much evangelism, witness, and mission is done as if Jesus is still dead, as if it's completely up to us to persuade people to believe in him, as if it's really up to us to make Jesus known. It's sort of like we think, yeah, God did what was necessary to save the world, but now it's really on our shoulders, on your shoulders, to make that salvation happen. And that's too much of a burden to bear. In fact, it's impossible, and I don't think it's what God wants, because Jesus has many witnesses in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist, the woman of Samaria, the disciples, the scriptures, his own works, but it's always Jesus who takes the initiative. 
who makes himself known. And that's what we see in this story. Mary sees Jesus. He's right in front of her. He's the thing that she wants most in the world. But she only recognizes him when he calls her by her name. And this is her witness. I have seen the Lord. Jesus is alive, not dead. And the gospel is telling us that whether Jesus is present bodily or not, Jesus is alive and always working to make himself known. That Jesus is actually, in a way, visible in our witness to him. And this means that your life and your words can become a place where God happens, a place where God is made known. And all you need to say is, I have seen Jesus. I have heard Jesus call me by my name. I have recognized that Jesus is alive. By the way, uh, you have this really strange thing in, in verse 17, a, a strange word about Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him or touch him since, he was, uh, since he's ascending to the Father. And uh, As a preacher, one thing you can do is skip over weird things in the text, but that's not what we're going to do. Uh, so, so what is this all about? Um, it seems to me that Jesus telling Mary not to cling to him because he's ascending to the Father, that it does two things. Um, first, it, it emphasizes Mary's need to go bear witness to the disciples about what she has seen. But it also emphasizes that Jesus will be present to the world in a different way from now on because Jesus is ascending to the Father. He won't be absent, but he'll be present differently. And, and exactly what that different way is, is what his next appearance is about. And that leads us to the second discovery we make. The second discovery is that Jesus involves us in the very life of God. And that's what it means to be involved in mission. Later on uh, that first day, I'm looking at verse 19 now. Later on the first day that Jesus was raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples and he wishes them peace. And in verse 20, he, he shows them his pierced, his pierced hands and he shows them the scar in his side. And the point seems to be that the same Lord who is crucified is the Lord who is resurrected. And when the disciples see the Lord, they're alive in glory before him, bearing marks of his self-giving and suffering love for them. They rejoice. Before his death, Jesus told his disciples that a time would come when they, they would weep and they would lament, but that when he saw them again, their hearts would rejoice and no one would ever take that joy from them. So here they see Jesus, and Jesus sees them, and they rejoice. And Jesus says this to the disciples. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's actually with those words that Jesus sends the whole church out on mission, including us. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. What does this mean? 
The word send in Latin is missio. It's where we get our word mission. And until the 16th century, mission was actually used only to talk about the divine life. The relation of the father to the son is a relation of sending. The father sends the son. The relationship of the father and son to the spirit is a, is a relationship of sending. The father and son send the spirit. Or is it just the father who sends the spirit? And so over this theological point that in the 11th century, the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church split from each other. This is serious and important stuff. But what we learn from it is that the, the very life of God and the identity of God from eternity involves sending. And, and in the 16th century, theologians discovered that the identity of the church is like Jesus. We are sent by the Father. Being sent by God is actually essential to what it means to be church because the church participates in the life of God, and the life of God is a life of sending and being sent. In the words of one contemporary theologian, as fire exists by burning, so the church exists by mission. Isn't that a powerful image? And it's powerful to me because it fuses what we are with what we are in the world or, or what we do in the world. It, it suggests that the very life of the church, its very existence, is bound up with mission, with sending and being sent. And the thing we need to know, of course, is it's not the church's mission. The mission by which the church exists as a fire exists by burning is God's mission. As is often said, the Church of Christ does not so much have a mission as the mission of Christ has a church. So Jesus is ascending to the Father, but he will not be absent. Why? Because what he is in the world, he calls the church to be. In the same way that the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends you. And that sending is mission. And so I've been using this word, what is mission exactly? And the best that I can tell is the mission of God is to bring the whole creation to fullness of life through the suffering and glorification of Jesus and in the company of the Holy Spirit so that God would be glorified in everything. And so, Jesus clarifies how the church will be involved in God's mission in, in two ways. In uh, verse 22, first, Jesus breathes on the disciples and tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conveys to us the presence of Jesus, even in his absence, so that what Jesus was in the world is really what we are. It's that we convey the presence of God and Jesus, not because we're so wonderful, because certainly we're not. We're inadequate, we're sinful, we're imperfect, both individually and together. We convey the presence of God and Jesus because God has chosen to live in us and through us by his Spirit. And then Jesus tells the disciples that Whatever sins they forgive are forgiven. 
And this is really confusing because forgiving sins is something we associate with what God does and not something that we do. Uh, this is the only time in the Gospel of John we actually get the phrase, the forgiveness of sins. But actually, I think that helps us because in the first chapter of John, Jesus is announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's like as the pure Lamb of God, Jesus has dealt with sin decisively. He has taken it away. He has removed it. He has broken its power. Sin in John, if, if sin in John is about our inability to trust God and, and all the destruction that our distrust of God causes humanity and the world, it's almost as if by coming and by revealing himself and by suffering and being glorified, Jesus has taken away that sin. He's removed it. And since the church is sent by Jesus, just as Jesus was sent by the Father, we extend the blessings of Jesus' salvation to the world. The disciples of Jesus forgive sins because God has dealt with those sins in Jesus. And so we're joyfully involved in the life and the mission of God. We're, we're sent out by Jesus with life-affirming, sin-forgiving witness to Jesus, to, to this Jesus who is the source of life and joy and peace and forgiveness and love. Um, and it's Jesus, it's Jesus, not only the one who sends us, he's the message and he's the promise that we proclaim. I want to be as practical as possible in my few remaining moments. What does it mean for us to participate in the mission of God? How do we really know if we are? And if we aren't, how, how do we do it? I, and I really think there's no strategy, there's no method, there's no technique, there's no program that can guarantee our faithful participation in God's mission or our success in witness and evangelism. I think there's no shortcuts, there's no easy steps. Uh, so that's not what I'm offering. But when you study scripture and when you study the history of Christianity as a global movement, there are certain practices commended to us that opens us up to the sending life of God. I want to say three. Um, and by the way, these are practices that we've been focusing on in our series of, on a beautiful risk, which is the risk to see where love takes us. And so we've mentioned these five practices that are coming up here. Is what, what sustains a life of love? So first, we need to stay very close to Jesus. We need to pursue Jesus together. When Jesus asks us, what do you seek? We need to be able to answer honestly that we seek you, Lord Jesus, because you have the words of eternal life. I think the way this happens is that we need to read the Bible together, and we need to pray together, and we need to discover anew the vitality and the power of these simple practices, because in them God meets us. Mary recognized Jesus when 
She heard him call her name. Jesus revealed himself to Mary. It's not that Mary earned that or something, but Mary was there at the tomb. She was seeking Jesus. We need to stay close to Jesus until we hear his voice and hear him calling each one of us by name. And secondly, we need to stay close to each other. We need to pursue a life together characterized by worship and discipleship, by real love for God and real love for one another. On Sundays, we gather to sing to the Lord, to hear scripture read and preached, to celebrate communion and baptisms, to pray. And we probably underestimate how vital worship is to our lives together. But it's not everything. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need to know each other's stories. We need to care for each other in such a real way that we drive out the demons of loneliness and of shame. We need to tell the truth to each other, and we need to tell each other the good word about Jesus. Just like Jesus sends Mary to the people he calls his brothers, we, we're family now because of what Jesus has done. We're friends now. We need to stay very close to each other and with great love. And third, we need to stay close to the world. We need to recognize how closely involved we already are in the life of the world, simply through our daily work and our participation in society. We need to be witnesses in the world to Jesus. We need to live as though trust in Jesus is it's the most normal thing in the world, because there's only one world, and that world is God's world, and it's the world... Jesus suffered and was raised from the dead to save. And so trust in Jesus is the most normal thing in the world because it conforms our lives to reality. If you have hid who you really are and what matters most to you, I hope you find new freedom and and joy with Jesus and witness and admission because Our witness to Jesus is life-affirming and sin-forgiving, and because the mission Jesus sends us on is to participate with God in bringing all creation to the fullness of life through the suffering and glorification of Jesus and in the company of the Holy Spirit and all to the glory of God. And we participate in the life and mission of God by responding to God with faith and That faith is faith in Jesus. It's faith in the resurrected Jesus. It's faith in the resurrected Jesus whose suffering love is still visible to us in his scars. As Jesus was in the world, so are we to be. So there's no way forward in mission or witness for us except through love, self-giving love costly love, love that brings us even to the point of suffering, love that moves us toward radical involvement in the lives of our neighbors, love that frees us to love freely and fully, love that opens up our lives together to the life of God. Jesus is speaking a word to us this morning that I want you to hear. As the Father has sent me, So I am sending you. Thanks be to God.